Hello, and welcome to Move This World with Sarah, conversations in social-emotional learning. I recently sat down with Maggie Lauer, Chief Marketing Officer for Hootsuite, and her cousin and dear friend born 11 days apart from her, Hannah. We talked about bringing our authentic selves into all of the spaces we find ourselves living and working, the skills and intestinal fortitude it takes to do that, and how it improves our own sense of well-being, purpose, and what we're able to give to others. I especially enjoy discussing what Maggie calls emotional modulation, a way to continuously recalibrate and maximize energy and strength in all of the different aspects of our lives. We also talked about the critical relationships that shake us from where we are and our current perspectives and hold us accountable to being better versions of ourselves. I hope we can all take away a little bit of the bravery, curiosity, and imagination that Maggie demonstrates as we carve out paths for ourselves in places where we, and others like us, may not have always been represented. Before we dive in, again, in true Move This World fashion, let's take an opportunity to center ourselves and ground ourselves by just acknowledging how we're feeling, taking our emotional temperature by reporting on how we're feeling as if it were the weather, as if we were weather people. So I'll go first. Today, it is a little cloudy. There's a chance of rain, so be sure to pack your umbrellas. But know that sun is in the forecast. It's going to be a sunny weekend. It's certainly going to be sunny next week. But today, we do need to watch out for some potential thunderstorms this afternoon. Over here in Maggie Lauerland, there's been a lot of different weather systems happening all at the same time. <laughs> so today is feeling a little bit clearer. We've got partly sunny, and the outlook is very good going into the weekend and next week. Lots of sun, maybe some crisp fall winter weather. Is nervous and hyper aware a weather pattern? Because that's kind of where I am right now. This is an unfamiliar territory for me. But I, I think I see some sun in the future also. Maybe. Great. If it's not a weather pattern, it really should be. Because I feel be. very connected to you right now. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing in that fun centering exercise. Tell us a little bit about your relationship. You two have a really special bond in how you've supported one another in your life journeys. We do. We are born 11 days apart, and we've essentially grown up together. We've seen each other through all of the bright spots and some of the tougher moments in our lives, and we're closer now than we've, we've ever been. If you look at a picture of either of us in the first two years of our life, it's usually the two of us looking comatose in front of a cake. So <laughs> <laughs> there are certain similarities to today. <laughs> and I'll, I'll take it back to weather a little bit. Like, I think there are definitely moments where there's so much happening that it can be hard to be in touch, but we always come back to each other. And I think that's something that's really special about the relationship as I, as I get older I find myself gravitating to those people that know me better and that can hold me accountable than anyone, but that also aren't requiring. When you get on the phone with somebody and the first thing they say is, why haven't you called me? It's like, oh man, when's this call going to be over? And mm -hmm. there's no like emotional baggage. Like we're both always very grateful for the time we get. And that's something that brings me just tremendous joy, even, even through the hard stuff. And we've been through a lot of really hard things together. As women, as mothers, as professionals, we've had to reinvent ourselves. And I've always felt like literally unshakable support from Hannah. So I feel very fortunate. She's almost like a sister cousin to make it weird. Yeah. <laughs> 
what a special relationship, how lucky you both are. You talk about being there for each other through bright spots and hard times. I've also heard you speak, Maggie, about this intestinal fortitude that you (laughs) have developed in yourself to be your authentic self. Where, Maggie, does that intestinal fortitude come from? Oh, what a great question. I think it comes from a couple of different areas. I think growing up, my parents both worked hard. They did everything for my brother and I and my older sister. But what I saw was just a lot of toil. Their version of parenting was to keep us as busy as possible. So if we were busy, we couldn't get into too much trouble, or so they thought. But they kept us really engaged. And I think that gave me this skill of resilience. You know, if it wasn't school, it was sports. If it wasn't sports, it was music. If it wasn't music, it was something else. So I think that root was planted really early. Just be moving, like do something to take away from anything that's <laughs> going to creep in on you and make you make you feel disconnected. And I think it served me well. I, I'll just say that for me, coming out was really hard. It was a process that took years. I feel like I still come out about once a week. I feel like you're never really done coming out. And that sometimes that's joyful and sometimes it gets old. Sometimes it's hard. And so I feel like having people in your life that just see you for who you are and having people that show up when you need them to show up and that you'll show up for no matter what, I think that's part of the fortitude, right? The intestinal fortitude and getting through those moments. And I think we have a lot of those. I think work is hard. It's challenging. It's challenging to be, you know, a mother and trying to be an advocate for people in the world and also trying to be exceptional at your craft, which Hannah is as well. And I think we both try to do our best in every venue that we're in. And sometimes that that's hard. So I think you develop over the years like ways to manage your emotional strength so that you can modulate. To me, that's kind of that idea of intestinal fortitude is knowing where you have to take energy away from so that you can put it over here and getting comfortable with that constant modulation. I love this idea of constant modulation, that we are constantly recalibrating where we put our time and energy. Can you give an example to help folks put into context what that might look like? What are the times where you say, you know what, I'm just going to pivot and this is going to fall off and not be a priority right now and I'm going to focus in here so that I can still be whole? Sometimes it's taking on way too much because I know that doing the thing that's additional. So so I've had a crazy week at work. I've been traveling all week long, but I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to go up and see Hannah on a Saturday night because I know if I make that investment, my heart's going to be full. I'm going to laugh a lot and it will kind of fill my cup, even though like every part of me probably wants to sit on the couch and fall down a Netflix hole for like four hours. What motivates me is like to get in that car, to pack up the kids, to go see Hannah and her husband and the boys and hang out. And then sometimes I'm just absolutely too exhausted to make the decision to go and do something. And so I have to get more comfortable canceling, which is something I'm getting better at as I get older. Like often I sign up and I'm like, well, I said I've got to do this. And so I do it and I do it and I keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting better at saying, I actually don't have to do that today. Like I can sleep. I can (laughs) hang out with my wife. I can fall down that Netflix hole if that's what I need to do for the next couple hours. But I I do think that it's getting better at making those decisions that support where you are and where your energy level's at and what it needs to restore. Someone recently said to me that empathy was also an exercise in understanding someone else's limits. And I think it's applied as well to ourselves and understanding our own limits and knowing, okay, this doesn't serve me. And this notion of guilt or obligation, or I have to fulfill X, Y, Z responsibility, who made that up? 
Like, says who? Thinking about intestinal fortitude as a skill, how do you build it? How do you cultivate it? How do you practice it? You just have to keep getting back up. I've been through periods of my career years ago. It was just in toxic situations. And I can remember being in bed and just not wanting to go. And my wife saying, you're going. You need to go. You got to show up for your team. She would kind of put me back together so that I could get up and I could go do the thing that I needed to do. And then over time, I think you just realize, okay, I can do this. And and I do think sometimes it's leaning into the the hardest situations you have and saying, I just have to get through it. And I find now, and I've had amazing coaching in my career. And I had this coach that talked to me a lot about eating the frog. So it's this book about leaning into the thing that you least want to do and doing it as quickly as possible so that you can remove all of the anxiety and fear that builds up from delaying. And I literally say it all the time. Like if I hear something like, oh, this is not going to be fun. I'm like, okay, I'm going to eat the frog. You have to go through hard things and prove to yourself that you can do hard things. And I think the more you do that, the better you get at doing that. Mm -hmm. And certainly believing in your ability to do it again because you've seen it before. Yeah, and I think it helps having people in your life that love you unconditionally. And I have those, and I think that helps a lot. So talk to us about those relationships. How have those relationships supported you in developing intestinal fortitude? Well, I'll talk about Hannah because she's here. I'll go back to our college days and we had kind of lost touch in high school and we were both pretty lonely. We were far away from home. I had gone far away from St. Louis. She had gone far away from Wisconsin. And our grandmother kind of gave us both trouble and said, you're both lonely. You really need to start writing because back then you used to write letters. And it ended up just being such a wonderful, like I would really look forward to getting those letters in the mail. And then as I got a car in college, I could go down and I could visit her and we'd pick up my brother (laughs) We go down to Richmond for the weekend, and which is ridiculous. It was a 10-hour drive for a weekend. <laughs> it makes no sense. These are things you do when you're 21. And I think just moving through those situations and saying, I'm just going to do this because I know I'm going to be so much happier on the other side is something that I've always kind of thought about that with my relationship with Hannah. Like we've gone through these big transitions, and when we both need to figure out a way to reset, like we go see music. We try to bring a lot of outside creativity into our relationship because we're both really passionate about it. But I think some of that intestinal fortitude is just built from years and years of going through hard things and knowing that's the person that's going to be on the other side. Sometimes the role of a person to get you through that is to take you out of it. And I feel like Hannah and I do a really good job of taking each other out of our heads when we need to get out of our heads. I think you can't come at things with a fresh perspective when you're stuck in the narrative and the record keeps skipping in your head. I love this idea of like shaking yourself out of where you are and if needed, physically removing yourself. And I was thinking about that this past weekend. I had a dear friend who kidnapped me. He just took me away and we went away for a weekend. And I think I hadn't realized how much the last almost two years of being a a working parent in a pandemic, I have been in survival mode. Like I have just been trying to keep my head above water that the idea of fully immersing myself in joy and laughter and recklessly not being responsible for my children for two days, something that I did more regularly pre-pandemic because I had business travel and life just felt a little bit more normal. And so Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would have taken myself out of that headspace. I needed somebody else to do that to me. So I love this idea of our relationships holding us accountable, and even taking action if we're not taking action ourselves. 
Maggie has modeled that throughout our lives and throughout the course of our relationship. I've watched her navigate spaces in college, for instance, where maybe not didn't love part of her college experience. And instead of sort of getting stuck in that space, deciding to do something really big and brave and adventurous, which is to go live in other countries and create new spaces for herself there. She's sort of the person usually taking that first step. She sees it very well, like when a new space needs to be created and is really proactive about making that happen for herself and for other people. So what does it mean to bring our authentic selves into all of the spaces we find ourselves living and working? Because when we are our authentic self, we feel more free, we feel more creative, we feel more empowered. How do we do that? Oh, that's a big question. I think for a lot of the first 23, 24 years of my life, I felt stuck in some way. I'll use coming out as a metaphor. It was not an easy process. And I think getting to the other side of that process and realizing that I'm going to have to look at every single thing about myself and accept it because people are just going to they're not going to like me even though they don't know me. So if I'm not really good, then I'm going to have a really hard time standing in my place, right? And so that process was exceptionally powerful for me. It was hard, but it was also like I was welcomed into this community that's changed my life. And I think that experience, whatever your coming out experience is, it doesn't have to be based on your gender. It can be something different. Maybe you're neurodiverse. Maybe there's just something else going on in your life that you need to accept and you need to be able to be out with it so that you don't have to navigate other people's sensitivities about yourself. I have found that unlocked more joy, more creativity, better relationships in my life. I think I'm a better person as a result of having gone through that process. And I think for me, authenticity isn't being mad and a warrior. It's being an advocate and bringing joy. I just try really hard to use humor to diffuse situations and help educate people. And I think that's part of how I embrace my authenticity, I'm kind of a weirdo and I'm good with it. I think it's part of what makes me an interesting person. I think my brain is wired differently. I think that's why marketing is an exceptional craft for me. I love doing it. I'm just, I'm who I am and I'm the way I need to be. And I try to be thoughtful. Well, even when you say that you feel like you can be an advocate for others, I would imagine it's hard to support and advocate for others when you're not living your authentic life. So it's kind of this ripple effect of how can we build a better world for other people yeah. if we're not doing that work for ourselves? Well, and I think taking that time to take care of yourself is a really good investment. I think there's been a little bit of an over-rotation to if you're gay, you need to come out, or if you're this, you need to come out. I think people need to go through their process at the exact pace they need to go through it because it, to your exact point, you're not going to get to the other side in a healthy way until you're totally comfortable with where you're at. And so I think part of that is just letting people be on their journey in the way that they need to be on it. If they want to talk to you, great. If they don't want to talk to you, just let them know you're there. Well, Maggie, you're the CMO of Hootsuite. You were named yet again the top 20 of Involves Outstanding LGBT Plus Executives list. Historically, the diverse LGBTQIA plus community has not been represented in positions of influence, whether that's media, business, politics. Who are the role models that you looked up to? Who supported you? How did you find them? Ooh, my mom. 
has always been my role model. I think she's an extraordinary woman. I think that she, you know, is a woman who entered the corporate world with no training. She taught herself how to become a coder in the late 70s. She's always had to fight for her place at the table. She enjoyed working at a time when, you know, that wasn't necessarily embraced. And my dad stood by her through all of it. That's who I grew up with. And so I'd say it starts with my mom. I think she's been a really critical role model for me. I'll be honest, I have not been discriminating in where I get support. I've had these tremendous cisgender heterosexual white males that have had no care for whether people thought I was different or not. And they supported me in such a steadfast way that I will I will have love and support for them my entire careers. I've had extraordinary women. I, I actually was really lucky. There weren't really very many LGBT folks around me at all. But I did grow up in financial services at a time when they were really pushing the boundaries. I think sometimes corporations innovate social change faster than our society does. But I worked for several incredibly powerful women who just said, you need to do what you need to do. And I support you. And you're exceptional at what you do. And don't allow yourself to become tokenized as a result of the fact that you're just this thing. It's one part of who you are. So there's been a bit of luck, right? I've been exposed to the right people at the right time. And I've just always worked really hard. I also had some people that weren't so great. And I had to come through all of that. And I think when you realize you can survive those things, it helps you become a better leader, helps you become a better person. And you realize you can kind of get through anything. So if you want to go for that role, you can go for that role. But I, I, I'm not going to be able to say that I I had a LGBT role model in one of these senior roles. I'd never seen a lesbian in a senior position probably until five, five six years ago in my professional circles. How did you set yourself up to learn from these folks? What kind of work did you do to prepare to be mentored? So early in my career, I was fortunate to work for some very senior people. So a lot of how I did that was I would be the one waiting until the end of the day when they actually had like mental space to talk to me. And I would I would just wait until they had room. And I've always found, especially when you're working with exceptionally busy people, you have to meet them where they're at if you really want to learn from them. If you're going to require them to come to you, like, good luck with that. (laughs) They're going to be frustrated. You're going to be frustrated. You know, there was one person in particular that, like, really changed my life, Laura Whitley. She ended up becoming very senior at Bank of America. And I would go into her office at 530, you know, six o'clock at night, and then we would spend the next hour talking and I could ask her anything I wanted because I think she was at a point in her career where she was excited to mentor. I was excited to learn. And just that process taught me a lot. So I tried to model that in any of the positions that I took from that day forward was how do I connect with this person in the spaces that they have the the mental bandwidth to connect with me? So I've always tried really hard to see where a person's at and then go to their space, especially when you're building your career, you have to get comfortable putting other folks ahead of you if what you want to do is really learn from them. I think that's harder for newer entrants to the workforce, but I'll never forget being an intern in college and I was working for this amazing woman, had this giant project that she was overwhelmed with. And I ended up going to work for her. And the only time that she could even breathe was on Saturdays. So one Saturday I just showed up And I said, what do you need? And I I literally thought she was going to start crying. (laughs) And it just changed my life. I was like, oh, this is actually a human being. This isn't just somebody paying for my internship. This is an actual living, breathing human being that appreciates the fact that I've made this this gesture. And, And I think trying to find those moments where you can connect with people matters a lot. And then they're going to be much more inclined to share with you. If you just come in with a list and say, this is all the stuff I need from you, It's a unidirectional relationship. And I think if you're not in dialogue with people, you're not learning. 
that's kind of how I've approached it throughout my career. Hannah, what's it been like for you to watch Maggie enter these new roles and find herself in these spaces, carving her own path and being both a mentor and a role model to so many? It's been remarkable to see her succeed in such a you know powerful way. And it's also, it's just not surprising. I think that Maggie has a tremendous amount of social, emotional intelligence that really lends itself to being successful in any space, really. And what's remarkable is that it comes naturally to her. But I think it's also a good model because we can learn that too, right? I think she's just an incredible sort of role model for how to be authentic and be brave and successful. What do you hope kids see today with role models like Maggie? I hope they see kindness. I feel like we could all, especially now, use a lot more kindness and I don't just get to see Maggie in her professional spaces. I more get to see her at home (laughs) with her kids and the kindness and the patience that she demonstrates as a mom and as a partner with Shannon is really beautiful. And then you see that reflected in the kindness of her children. And again, for me, as a mom with similar aged children, struggling through the same work, pandemic, all of the things that many of us have moved through in the last year and a half, Maggie has really modeled for me, like, how do I want my children to receive me? Frustrated and and irritated that they won't turn the TV off or Can I use some of what I've seen (laughs) from Maggie to really promote more of like a a collaborative, kind experience between a a parent and and a child? It's interesting to, as a parent, come to realize how much I have to learn about social emotional intelligence and like how I can be better when I kind of, I thought I was pretty good. <laughs> I was always kind of good, but now I know there's more and Maggie does it really well. Like she does most things. I love you. That's so sweet. Banana. <laughs> but to your point, we're never done, right? We've never arrived. There's always yeah. work to do. And so Maggie, I've heard you talk a lot about thoughtful curiosity. Hmm? How does curiosity show up for you in your own self and in your relationships? How do you stay curious? So Hannah's going to laugh because this is 100% true. I'm an interviewer, so I love to talk to people. And it's interesting because I'm definitely an ambivert and and a Scorpio. So there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) But I have a lot of capacity for being extroverted until I'm done. And then I need to go and shut it down a little bit. So for me, I think that it's important as a leader to make decisions, but it's important to make informed decisions. And if you aren't humble enough to ask your people what they think and really engage in reverse mentoring with people coming into the job market and into the world, then you're going to miss the boat. And you're also not going to create an environment for safety and failure, which I like to call learning. I don't think there's failure, especially in marketing, where you need to be testing all of the time all of the time. So if people are afraid to fail, they're going to be afraid to try. And so this idea for me of thoughtful curiosity is anybody that I'm interacting with, they're probably going to hear more questions from me about who they are and trying to understand them than anything, because I think that every interaction you have with somebody, somebody probably has something really lovely to offer in terms of perspective and insight. And 
I try to stay really present to that because I'm fortunate. I'm in it. I love what I do. And part of that means I get to be surrounded by exceptional, wonderful people who are so creative and interesting. So this is kind of an easy task for me because I'm eager to understand how I can get better at some of the things that they're wonderful at or how to think differently and design thinking and and all of that. So I, I think it's just about there are people that are active listeners and there are people that are waiting for their turn to speak. And I try to be somebody that's actively listening. How did you develop the curiosity the drive and have the dream to carve your own path in a space where there hasn't been historical representation. I mean, I went through many dreams. I mean, I think at one point, I think at one point we both wanted to go to med school, Hannah. I think there's been a lot of different, I applied to law school. I mean, there were a lot of different things. I couldn't really, I was going to go into academia. The drive part, I had two parents that I never saw not working. I, I would love to give you a more elegant answer, but I think I grew up with two people that, you know, had to make really brave decisions in their young adult life and go out and try out the world outside of this small community in Iowa that they lived in. And they had to reinvent their vision for the future. And I saw them do it. And I don't think it was always easy, but they did. And there's a gap between my sister my sister's 13 years older and my brother and I are 13 years younger. So they were a little older when they had my brother and I and they just constantly put us in the best situations they could for learning and for growth. And we always appreciated having all of these opportunities that we knew they were working really hard to provide. And so the drive, I think, comes from, I was really competitive growing up. My dad is a complete jackass on the tennis court. Like he is the most, <laughs> he is the most kind, sweet, like he, George is the kindest, sweetest, most lovely man in the world until you get him in an athletic setting. And then it's all bets are off. So I grew up with that too. I mean, there was just always this competitive drive. And I mean, winning is a lot more fun than losing sometimes. I think you get some of your most valuable lessons from losing, but the drive was there. I was a hard worker that did a lot of transformation work, change agent work, and so typically when you see women move into these executive roles, they get the thorniest stuff and then they have to go in and fix it. And so it's that drive is what got me to that place. And then I got into a profession that I realized, wow, I really love what I'm doing here. And so the dreams kind of form around that. And I think my dreams change all the time. I think I have a lot of different things I'm going to do and want to do, but the drive is what's consistent. We've made a lot of progress in terms of inclusive, diversity, equity initiatives in the workplace, in schools, in society, but we certainly have so far to go. What more do we need to do? Where do we go from here as young people, as leaders, as parents, as educators? What's next? I work with our head of HR, who is maybe the most progressive head of HR I've ever worked with in my career. And the first thing she did when I interviewed for Hootsuite, the first thing she did was ask me what my preferred pronouns were. And I was literally like almost gobsmacked. Like it took me kind of a second to recover. And I thought, if that had that big of an impact on me, can you imagine if you're somebody that has to explain their gender expression and their gender identity over and over again? So when I think about people that skeptical and sarcastic about pronouns, when it's really just such an easy thing to do to make people feel comfortable, that's when I'm reminded of how much work we have to do. And so I think it's using more inclusive language. We, we just rolled out our family leave benefits. We just expanded them tremendously. And there was the word heteronormative in there. We're not going to use the heteronormative um, definition of family. I, I think I literally teared up. And I called Tara and I said, I don't think you have any idea 
how much more visible people feel inside of Hootsuite than they probably ever have before because you make intentional decisions around the words that you choose. And so I think that's a big lesson for all of us. Like the words you choose and the way you show up is what creates inclusivity. It's not just the policies. It's the way you describe the policies. It's the way you embrace the policies. And it's that you're thinking outside of the standardized experience. And by the way, I don't think straight white people have very standard experiences either. I think it's a really reductive term. I think there's a little bit of toxicity just in the word straight. <laughs> like It's just not a very helpful word in many ways. And so I think that inclusivity needs to expand, not just for the marginalized community, but in general. I just think we need to be having better, richer, more inclusive conversations, no matter what room you're in. Well, I mean, tell us, what do you think the future can look like? What do you hope your kids see today that maybe you didn't see when you were growing up? How can we help our children see themselves in their dreams, in their future roles, in their aspirations? Because representation matters. I think we've been fortunate in that, you know, we're in Chicago. We're in a really progressive, diverse part of the city by design. Our kids just don't, you know, they recognize things that are different because they have eyes, but they don't make assumptions about what that means. And by saying that, my daughter is five. She just turned five and my son is 10 going on 11. And I don't know if this is actually a drop ball moment or a good moment, but literally a year ago, Jasper asked my wife and I what lesbians were. <laughs> and we're like, well, we are. <laughs> and, he, and he said, well, so what does that mean? And I just said, well, you know, there are all kinds of different families and there are all kinds of different relationships. And we fell in love with each other and we're both women. And he's like, oh, so that's all that is. And I said, yeah, it didn't have to be more complicated than that. And I I think for our children, like we had some really tough conversations last year during Black Lives Matter. And I think it's actually a really good thing when you have to try to break really complicated topics down to the 10-year-old mentality so that you can break through. The labels matter so that people feel seen, but the labels aren't the thing you enter the room with. You're just a person. And whoever that person is that enters the room, that's what matters. We're probably a long ways away from that. But I, as somebody that came out in the early 2000s, I do think we've made tremendous progress. There's more work to do. And I think the thing that's hard is every time you feel like you're making progress, then something changes and then some of those things get taken away. And I, I think we have to get to a place like one of the things I've really enjoyed about being in a Canadian company and experiencing Canadian culture, there are just some things that are no longer negotiable. They just have their doctrine of human rights. This is the way it is. And I, I think when we can get to a point where some of these things just aren't negotiable anymore, they're not up for grabs, dependent upon what's happening politically. And I'm not going to get into politics, but, you know, human rights issues should just be something that's taken for granted and something that's assumed, not something that's a political tool. And I think when we can get to that place, then I think we will have made true progress. So what do we need to do to amplify the voices of marginalized communities? Because we do have so far to go in schools, in workplaces, in policies, in communities. How do we lift those voices up? Oh, we have to listen. I mean, I think one of the things that a lot of us try to do, maybe due to our own collective guilt, is we try to fix before we've actually listened to what the issues are. There are all these partnerships that are now happening with HBECs, which I think is extraordinary. I think that we need to be more inclusive of different educational models. And so I think as leaders in corporations, we need to open the aperture of how we bring in candidates. We need to try to remove unconscious bias as much as we can. And I think from an advocacy perspective, you have to do more than just write the checks. You have to 
think about the ways in which people in different communities want to receive information. You need to be thoughtful, you know, why this is something that they might not want to purchase from you. I think in marketing, this is something we talk about every single day, how to be inclusive and also be authentic. So yes, of course, part of my job is to sell things to people, but how do I do it in a way that people feel good about the brand they're supporting? And I think more and more companies now are taking that on. I don't think this is a trend. I hope it's not a trend. But I think if if we as a society can push for more accountability for companies to really embrace societal health as one of their mandates, then I think that's going to push things further than anything else. I mean, volunteering, writing checks, all of those things are good. But I think driving richer conversations, being truly inclusive in your policies, trying to get the best talent in, even if it's harder, even if it takes a little bit longer to fill those roles, making sure you get to diverse candidate slates matter a lot. I think there's a degree to which you just have to get in there and do it and you have to do the hard work. And it's one of the things that I admire most about Hannah. And actually her sister does the same thing. They're both, they've literally spent their entire adult lives just helping people. And and not everybody has that capacity. So acknowledge what capacity you have at wherever you are in life. When I was earlier in my career and in my life, I didn't have capacity to be an advocate. I was still trying to deal with my own stuff. And now I have more of a platform and I have more capacity to help. And I think you got to find your moments, but you can't run away from getting involved forever. It's so inspiring and a perfect way for us to leave this conversation. And it seems incredibly timely now more than ever. Everything that we're living through as a society, this idea of taking action, eating the frog in every aspect of our life. Sure, professionally, but more importantly, what that means for our societies and our communities and just going for it. So thank you so much, Maggie and Hannah, for sharing your time with us. I so treasured this conversation. Let's go ahead and close with three intentional breaths so that we are in a clear position as we move on to whatever's next in our days. Let's take this first breath for the power and potential of living our authentic selves wherever we are with whomever we're with. Let's take a deep breath in and out. Let's take this second breath for this group right here having this conversation, the deep sisterhood and friendship and relationship that you two have cultivated in order to live your authentic lives. Breath in and out. Let's take this third and final breath for ourselves. May our days be meaningful and productive and our nights peaceful. Breath in and out. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Maggie. This was so much fun. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. This was lovely. And thanks, Hannah. Thank you so much. Anytime, Mags. Thanks for listening to Move This World with me, Sarah Potler Lahane. Before you go, wherever you are right now, join me for one final breath and hold in your mind a word or phrase that you are taking away from this conversation. Breathe in and out. 
At Move This World, we know social and emotional wellness is necessary, relevant, and impacts our everyday lives, at school, in our homes, at our workplaces, and in our relationships. The tools we need to develop are critical for our happiness and success as individuals and as communities. Together, we can create a world where everyone belongs. To explore more ways to move this world, visit us at movethisworld.com or follow us on Twitter at move underscore this world. If you liked this episode, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Jessica Altunian and Seaplane Armada. I cannot wait to move this world with you.